Hello and welcome to Tarot Bites. I'm Teresa Reed, the Tarot Lady. I'm the author of the Tarot Coloring Book and your host for this podcast series. This is episode 118 of Tarot Bites, the podcast where I dish out short, entertaining, bite-sized lessons on how to read tarot. And for today's episode, our topic is gate cards. And I have a very special guest, the one and only Rachel Pollack. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, I am glad that you are here because I think this is a topic that so many tarot people are intrigued by, especially after reading 78 Degrees of Wisdom, because that's the first place that I ever heard of gate cards. So could you explain for people who are listening what a gate card is and what it does? Well, I'll begin by saying how I came up with the idea. Um, And really what it had to do with was... um, you know, Seventy Degrees of Wisdom was the first book to look at the minor arcana card pictures as having their own meaning and to explore them beyond just the formulas given. You know, mm-hmm. so before that, books that wanted to treat the minor arcana seriously just did it in terms of the Golden Dawn, Kabbalistic, you know, four suits, four trees of life, etc. There was nothing about the pictures and their meanings. So. I was concerned with like exploring how you can use the pictures in a meaningful way, as well as the numbers and the suits and the energy and so on. And I wanted to see if there was a dimension to the minor cards that went beyond the usual everyday practical things, the way the major cards looked at archetypal kinds of energies and exploring spiritual worlds. And what I came up with was the idea that certain cards, this is Fairly subjective. Other people have chosen other cards, but certain cards. I was using the writer deck, and you have this, for this. You really need to have cards that have a scene on every card. But certain cards seem to open up to a kind of being or way of understanding that was beyond the picture. The picture was like an entry point to something else. And as you say, it's subjective. Other people have found other cards that they would feel that way about. Um, one of my favorite examples, one of the early ones really for me, was the Ten of Pentacles because it shows an archway, and the archway is a very kind of, I don't know, staid-looking kind of family. They're, to me, they never look very happy, not really communicating with each other. Um, but, but anyway, but then outside the gateway, there's all these mysterious symbols, and there's this old man wearing a kind of coat of many colors. So to me, that gateway, that archway was the gate, to a more mythological kind of realm or a more archetypal kind of realm that the card could inspire you to explore if you wanted to. Wanted to. Otherwise, you could just go beyond the, go to the card's regular meanings. You know? Something else about that card in the writer deck that makes it meaningful is it's, I think, the only card where the suit symbols are not part of the scene. Not something like in the Eight of, the eight of Pentacles, the guy's working at Pentacles, and he's mounted seven on his post, who's working on number eight. Anyway, but in this one, the ten Pentacles are just there on top of the picture, but they are in the form of the Tree of Life, um, which is the only place in the deck that it fully appears. It appears in kind of a hidden form in some of the major arcana cards, like in the High Priestess, where a body is hiding part of it, and in the form of the body of the hanged man, and so on. But otherwise, um, the only place you actually see it is on the Ten of Pentacles, where usually it doesn't react with the picture. So again, it's like something beyond the picture, beyond the scene. 
so that was one of the inspirations for this idea that you could take these pictures and you could have them inspire you to go beyond the simple direct meaning of it in the kind of, you know, spread of what's going on in my life right now. Right, and most people for the major, the minor arcana, we do think of just the day-to-day stuff. We don't look at it in that deep way that these gate cards are kind of begging people to do. Yeah. So, you know, you've mentioned the Ten of Pentacles, and in 78 Degrees of Wisdom, you said that each suit has at least three gate cards. Can you tell me what the other gate cards are for each suit? Oh, my gosh. No, I can't. Right okay. Now. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I would have to actually do the research myself. To right on. Read back on it. I don't think, I, I think it was that many. I think it was, I think the Pentacles had three, and the others had two or one. Right. That's my memory, actually. Well, I, I know you said that the wand suit has the fewest gate cards. Yeah, I think it just has like one. That would, that's because the wand energy is so out-directed. Uh-huh. It's, it's directed into the world, into action, into doing things. Ah, that makes sense then. Yeah. So it's not yeah. internal like the other ones. Yeah, now the pentacles is interesting because the pentacles is the outer world. It's the earth, you know. But just because it's so grounded, uh-huh. it like opens up something beyond that dimension. Got it. You know, and I, and you know, and it varies. I mean, it's a very subjective thing. You know, other people have found their own versions of this. Mm-hmm. They've liked the idea, and they've taken it to what works for them. So something that comes to my mind right now, I'm not sure this is what I put in the book, actually, um, would be, say, the Six of Pentacles, mm-hmm. which is the man giving coins to beggars, you know? So on the surface, it's about charity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's about needing to ask for charity. It's a very powerful card. I think... That section had the that card had the longest section in the book. One of the things I did differently in seventy degrees of wisdom in the minor arcana that for most people was I did not try to make everything the same length. Right. And the longest the longest length was the six of pentacles. And you know, so the gateway there is to the idea of asking and receiving. Mm-hmm. Which can be a very spiritual kind of thing. Um you could actually see that picture as a master and disciple, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and not in the hierophant way, which is very formalized, but more in a very direct way of a kind of like, a, say, a Sufi master and, you know, the people who come to him for initiation, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and another thing that's interesting about that is that he's holding balanced scales. And Wade says... A man in the guise of a merchant, mm-hmm. not a merchant. So the suggestion that there's something beyond the dimension of what, something beyond what we're seeing, mm-hmm. we're seeing something else. You know, something. You know, my partner years ago, Edith Katz. She she read guise as disguise. That it's the principle of justice disguised as a merchant, as someone doing something in ordinary life. And the balanced scales represent justice. Right, and it could also be like the scales of karma, I guess. Yeah, which is one of the aspects of the justice card again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, one of the cards that, that you call a gate card, which I find to be a really interesting one, is the Eight of Swords, because, you know, the figure's tied mm-hmm. up. So how is that a gate? Well, it, in several ways. One is, you could say, that it forces you to go inwards. Ah. Uh. You know, you can't, and of course, she's not, her legs are not tied. Mm-hmm. I always have a lot of trouble with um, 
new decks that attempt to redraw, reconfigure the Rider cards. They almost always don't understand them. And they don't understand all the subtleties of symbolism. They just think it's a nice picture, mm-hmm. you know? So, um, and that card is a great example. It was one deck, I forget, you know, what, exactly what edition it was, but it was another company. They were trying to basically do their own version of the Rider deck. Um, and the Eight of Swords, the person drawing it, had her tied to a tree. And so he was missing the entire point mm-hmm. of the picture, which is that there's nothing stopping her. Mm-hmm. But what's stopping her is the blindfold. So on one level, it's, you know, about, you know, what is blindfolding you? What is confusing you to make you feel helpless? You know, and it's also, I've seen it as an image of women's oppression mm-hmm. way back when, you know, the whole issue of, like, what women were experiencing individually, they were discovering was part of a structural system. And one of the things that happens to women or happened to women then, so does, I'm sure, in many cases, is the belief in that they're helpless. You know, and actually they're not. Mm-hmm. But they're so, their mind is like fogged by society, by their, you know, their families, their husbands, et cetera, to feel that they have no options. Right, you know? but this card's a reminder that they do. Yeah, so this card on one level is a reminder that they do. But there's another level, though, and in which you can see this as a kind of meditation thing. Mm-hmm. The two of pentacles, I mean, the two of swords for sure, because she, just, she doesn't have to sit there. Mm-hmm. You know, she can drop those swords and take off the blindfold and walk away. But in the eight of pentacles, uh, sorry, I mean, sorry, the eight of swords, she could only move if she realizes that her legs are untied, but she can't see where. Mm-hmm. So she can take this moment go inwards. Instead of feeling like oppressed, instead of feeling like helpless, she can go inwards to whatever world she can discover by doing that. And Walt Amberstone of the New York Tower School reinforced the idea when he said that the number of coils of rope around her is a number called for in a, um, in a Freemasonry initiation mm-hmm. rite. You know, so she could be initiated. She could be in in the experience of initiation. I often see the high priestess, too, as like an initiation. So both those cards together, I can see them both having that same inward initiation-type energy to them. Well, to me, the high priestess would be the one who initiates. Mm. She's already achieved it. Right on. But if you put those two together, then, yeah, it could be like, you know, the high priestess is initiating you. And you know what, that's interesting too because in your book you also talk you know, about the Eight of Cups and the Hermit having similarities. Yes. And so the Eight of Cups could be the journey and the, simil- and the, the Hermit is actually the journey completed. Or how might you see you know, both of these cards as gates in some way, in your opinion? Well, again, I, the term gate I, I tended to use for the minor arcana mm-hmm. because the major arcana already has the idea of a spiritual dimension, um, an archetypal dimension, a logical dimension, and so on. I'm worried this from archetype because people misuse it too much. It's, you know, it, Jung used it in a very specific way, and other people use it in a very loose way, like me right now. Mm-hmm. But, you know, but the major kind of already has an idea that, you know, there are other dimensions besides the surface meaning. But the Eight of Cups is an interesting card because, I mean, it looks like, you know, he looks like he's on the way to become the hermit. He's going up the mountain, you know? Right. Um, but then something I've noticed fairly recently, someone pointed out to me, actually, I think, 
but that the way the cups are arranged, there's a gap. Instead of four and four, it's five and three. And the three have a space between two and one. You know, and partly Pemmelsen did that so we could see his body. Uh-huh. I mean, artistically, it was probably a necessary thing, so the cubs were not blocking his body. But the effect is that there's something missing, and he's going off to look for it. Oh, that's brilliant. You know, and the nine of cups could be that he's found it and he's come back. And people, and nine of cups could be another card that has many dimensions because people see it as, and I tended to see it too, and when I wrote seven degrees, you know, it's sort of shallow. Um, someone who doesn't look beyond, you know, happiness and material pleasures. Because he's drawn in this kind of like, you know, chubby, smiling kind of way, and then there's a curtain behind him that we don't know what's behind the curtain, and so on. But I recently learned that in fortune telling tradition, any Nine of Cups card in any deck means your wish is granted. Mm-hmm. So if I lie that to coming after the Eight of Cups with the missing cup, it could be your wish is granted on a spiritual level. You know, you you found what you were looking for. Yeah. That's interesting. And you know, also, when you put the Eight of Cups, now that you mention this, this gap between them, if you put it next to the Five of Cups and you got five stacked perfectly and then three stacked perfectly, mm-hmm. and the Five of Cups we look at, and here there are five cups, but three are spilled, that also right. gets me thinking about, wow, what's going on here? There's like five and three all over the place. Yeah, yeah. And three and one and the four. Mm-hmm. And so on. You know, the, the image of the three of cups, of course, by itself. Um, one of the things I, I kind of discovered when I was writing my book, the new Cheryl Handbook, which was going to be like a kind of Eden Gray kind of book. It's sort of my my goal was to write a book that would have be fairly simple, fairly straightforward. I had just done Tarot Wisdom, which is very dense, mm-hmm. and so I wanted to do something more simple. And but I also wanted to do something that looked beyond the simple formula so, to see if I could find new things. And one fascinating thing I discovered was that the Tree of Life appears throughout the Minor Arcana, disguised. And the first place I noticed this was in the Three of Cups. Because it was the women holding the Three Cups, the way they hold them in a triangle is the top triangle of the Tree of Life. And I realized that the women are the three pillars. Mm-hmm. So again, people don't understand that they'll do the Three of Cups in which you see three women dancing wildly, like they're at a party. But that's not what's going on. What's going on is people coming together to create the Tree of Life. I love that. Yeah, it's very, it's very powerful. You know, in the Five of Pentacles, for example, is also the fact that how to create a, um, the, the pentacles in the window are the top half of the Tree of Life, the top five. And if you only have the top five, it only points upward. It's not until you get six that anything points downward. Mm-hmm. Um, so the pentacles are the top half, and then the people are the bottom half, uh, the physical part. And when you have the, the spiritual separating from the physical, then you have misery. Mm-hmm. They don't need to penetrate. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's another place where this, you know, secretly coded into the picture. That's really interesting because, you know, I, one of the things I do, too, is I teach yoga. And in yoga, you know, we often talk about the chakras. And everybody wants to get into those upper chakras. And <laughs> you know, they, they all want to get there. It's like everybody wants to get that, you know, 
seventh chakra. Oh, yeah. And they don't want to deal with the root chakra, so oftentimes there's a disconnect. And the only way to get these these ones to connect is through the heart chakra. So yeah. oftentimes what I'm telling people is like, forget the other chakras. You've got to get that heart one working properly. When that works properly, everything's connected, and then the magic begins. Right. And the heart is like a border. Mm-hmm. If you think of it, the chakras below the heart are all physical. Yeah. The chakras above the heart are all spiritual in some way. Yeah. You know, there's communication, there's the third eye, spiritual awareness, and then there's the crown of spiritual openness. Whereas below, it's like, you know, the gut, you know, yeah. gut knowledge, and then the genitals of desire, and then the, you know, the survival, you know, right. base of the spine. By the way, have you encountered the, the fact that lots of people seem to think the bottom chakra is, is the genitals? Yeah, no, they do. Yeah, and they're so certain of it. It drives me crazy. Yeah, and it's not. Not at all. Yeah, I know. It's a second. I mean, you try to tell people this. They, oh, no, no, no. It's just, you know, it's because they think that the sexual desire is the root of everything. Right, and it's not. No, of course, survival is, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the second chakra is all about um, the sexuality and the creativity, not the first chakra. Yeah. yeah. The first chakra is basic survival and existence. The second chakra is activating energy. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 again, when you think about that, the, the tree of life and something like the five of pentacles, you know, again, that's that's automatically what I go to is is the yoga thing about it. So I, I find that really fascinating. I think everything spiritually is connected in some way. It's like we're all doing the same thing here mm-hmm. in different ways. So the last question I want to ask you is, how might you recommend that people work with the gate cards? I mean, are there any specific ways that a tarot reader might want to explore them or? You know, what do you recommend? Well, a couple of things. First of all, I recommend looking at the ones I suggest, uh-huh. but then looking at the rest of the minor cards and seeing what strikes other people. Because a lot of people have written to me about that, that they, see, or they see different gate cards, and I do, which is great, you know. So that's the first thing, is to identify what the cards are for you, uh-huh. and then to identify, like, what they are opening to, just by themselves, not in a reading. And then in a reading, though, you have to feel what level the reading is, you know, and how open, if you're reading for yourself, it's a question of what do you want to look at, what do you want to explore? You know, are you looking at some very practical question, in which case you don't really need to be looking beyond this more direct level of meaning of the card, or are you looking at the cards always as a way to open yourself up to something else, or you're doing a special reading like that? And the same with your clients or the people you read for is to decide whether or not, um, you know, this is what interests them. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people who want a reading have no interest in those things, you know. Right. They only want to know what's going to happen and, you know, will their new business venture succeed or when will their soulmate come to them and will their husband leave his girlfriend and come back to them, you know, the usual questions. Right. They don't care about other things. But so we, you, we need to care about the other things. Well, you know, maybe we do, but if they don't, they don't. Right. You know, there's a famous thing in 12-step programs that I feel like applies to tarot reading, too, in a way, which is they say if you see someone, let's, let's say it's an AA issue, you know, and whether or not you're an alcoholic yourself, but you know what the signs are, you know, and you see someone who to you is an alcoholic in denial, and they say, you know, you, you just tell the people about program of the steps, and then it's up to them. You say to them, you know, I will take you to a meeting if you feel like you'd like to. Mm-hmm. And then you drop it. 
you know, people make the mistake of constantly, you know, saying, to the come on, you've got to face up to this. You're in denial. You've got to go to a meeting, you know. Um, and they feel the same extent with clients. You know, if you, if you hint at some deeper meaning and they don't want it, they don't want it, you know, and that's that. Yeah. I have one client who has a lot of meetings with me. She's probably my most steady client, um, not every week, but, you know, fairly often. Anyway, and she only wants very hard answers to specific questions. Mm-hmm. And if I try to suggest to her that a particular card can have a deeper layer, she says, you're wasting my minutes. <laughs> I have more questions, you know. And so, fine, I mean, that's what she wants, you know. That makes me laugh because, you know what, I, I'm kind of guilty of, of when I get a reading from someone. Yeah. I only ask about the same things. And I'm like, I don't want to hear anything about my health. Mm-hmm. Don't tell me about my love life. My love life's fine. I don't need to know about it. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, I'm just concerned about I want to know about business and I want to know that my children are okay. Mm-hmm. And that's all I ever ask. I'm the most boring person to read. So um, probably that's why people don't maybe <laughs> like reading me because it's like that's all I'm really concerned about right now. So I'm very guilty of that. Yeah, I tend basically to look at issues of work and creativity. Yeah. Um, probably maybe, you know, there's other things I don't want to look at particularly. Yeah. Um, not that I don't need to, but I might not want to. <laughs> right on. But, I mean, so, but when you're doing the things you're asking about, so suppose somebody said, you know, um, let's say the Eight of Swords came up, and what are the two things you asked of your children, and what was the other one? Oh, my work. Work, okay. So the Eight of Swords comes up. So the person says to you, okay, well, this shows that you're blocked in your work. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe you have writer's block or something like that, you know, and you're confused. But then they say, but it also can be that you need to take your work into a deep inner level mm-hmm. that you're not looking at. You're too out of direction, and this is urging you to go inwards and see what the work means to you. Now, would that be something you would listen to? Yes. Okay. So, so I actually am open to the, the other stuff. As Got long it. as it stays on the level of the subject, you're open to all those different levels. Right on. You know, as long as it stays with the subject you're asking about, and I, I mean, I basically, I try to focus on reading what people ask about. Mm-hmm. As I think you know, I, I actually write down what they say. Right. Word for word, as much as I possibly can, and that becomes the reading. Right. I love that. I really do. Yeah, that's something I just discovered once. I was doing a reading for this woman, and the things she was saying were just interesting. So I started writing them down, you know, and then I found that that was just a great thing to do. You just, you know, a lot of people feel they shouldn't be too specific. They should let the tarot reader come up with their own psychic insights or whatever. And I find that kind of annoying because <laughs> to me it limits the reading. Well, I think also, um, you know, and, and oftentimes when people do come to me, that's what they, they want. And I think sometimes what what happens then is, you know, it kind of creates this energy then where they're looking to be entertained. And when they come, when people come with a really good set of questions and they're very clear about what they want to yeah. focus on, I think that way you, first of all, you get the reading you want. Mm-hmm. And second of all, then you're not, you're not putting the reader in that position where they're, they're having to pull like something out of thin air or they're having to pull a parlor trick is what I call it. Yeah. When I get a reading from somebody, I'm always extremely specific. I'm like, this is what I want to know about. This is what I don't want to know about. I don't okay. care about this. Mm. And I think really, you know, it's from all my ex- my years of experience of being a reader, I, I think that has, um, you know, really helped me to know that when I get a reading, that's how I want to show up. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, I mean, a lot of people are just, all they know is how to read what they see on TV. Yeah. And, of course, that's a fantasy of the mysterious psychic gypsy lady. Right. You know, who sees, who sees all, tells all, blah, blah, blah. And so they think that if they tell you what the questions are, it's cheating. Yeah, I know. Uh, which is just so annoying. You know, it's like, I know this is like, as a tower reader, this is one of the things I most struggle with, mm-hmm. is expectation. Yep. Um, but let me ask you something. So suppose you're getting a reading. Mm-hmm. Let's say you're doing a reading for someone who says, all I want to know about is my kids, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you look at the cards, and the cards are screaming health issues. Mm-hmm. Would you ignore that, or would you, would you say, look, I have to tell you something. There's something that's kind of like really screaming out at me. What, what would you do in that kind of situation? I always tell people if I'm feeling something really strongly, mm-hmm. I need to go and I need to tell you this. But I'm always mindful that if they've said something specifically, like I don't want to hear anything about health, I'm mindful on how I deliver the message. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's all about being mindful about respecting what the client wants and needs, but also not, you know, shutting up if you see something important. Yeah, I think that we have to respect the client, but we also have to respect the cards. Yes, absolutely. I always say that the cards are a third person in the reading. Mm. You know, there's the, the reader, the querent, and the cards. And yeah. The, and you have to recognize that the cards are their own creature in a way. Absolutely. I mean, they are every bit as involved, so we're all having a dialogue together. Yeah. And when we're having the dialogue together, it the reading becomes really magical. Yes, yeah. And, you know, what's interesting is sometimes... Things can be discovered in a reading when you do it that way mm-hmm. that neither you nor the querent had any idea about. Yeah. It just emerges. And that is so, I love it when that happens. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of magic, you've got a new edition of your book coming out, 78 Degrees of Wisdom. And I've got to tell you, this is just in time because my, <laughs> my, my old edition is so dog-eared. It's the one tarot book that I always refer to the most. And, oh, thank you. Oh, my God, I just love it so much. I mean, when people say, what is the book that I should get for tarot, you know, I don't even hesitate. It's always, well, you have to get 78 Degrees of Wisdom, of course. Oh, thanks. So I'm thrilled that there's this new edition. It's coming out on Wiser. It's yeah. got a gorgeous new yellow cover. I've got... Yeah, it's um, like a speck with sunshine. It's a great cover. Oh, yeah, and the sun is my favorite card on the deck. So, you know, the whole thing just made me happy holding it in my hands. And so why a new edition? Tell us about it. Well, it was something initiated a little wiser. I think they were having like an anniversary of their own, mm. and they wanted to do new editions of really classic books. Um, so there's my book, there's Tara for Yourself, and Mary Greer, there's one or two others. Um, so... It was part of that. It was part of them deciding they wanted to do something special. And so what they did when they approached me was they asked me to write a new preface. Mm-hmm. And what I wrote about is the times in, over the years since the books were first published in two volumes, 1980 and 83, that people have said to me that the cards saved their life, my books saved their life. Right. Um, which is an amazing experience. I mean, you know, an email from a stranger telling you that this book that you wrote literally saved a person's life. Mm-hmm. That they were going downhill, you know, and wouldn't have lasted very long. And then they discovered this book and the cards, and it took them out of where they were. Um, 
and I've heard this time and again. And so I really wanted to write about that. I wrote a little bit about it in the preface to the 1997 edition. I went into it more deeply in this one, this preface. I love the story you shared in there about, in the preface, about the the person who uh, gave you the necklace and yeah. and told you that they wanted you to keep it because, as you said, you saved their life. Yeah, that's what he said. I mean, you know, I was looking at this at this caduceus, which is my favorite symbol, just about, and um, and you know, it was really beautiful, but also kind of expensive. And I said, "Well, I probably shouldn't get it." And he said, "Here, take it." And I said, "What? Why?" He said, "Because you saved my life." Uh-huh. <laughs> Amazing. I, you know, I, at first I was going in more detail, and I thought that was too private. You know what he told me, so I kept it on a more simple level. Um, but it was a very powerful experience, and since then I've had others. Uh-huh. And I'll, I'll tell you a little story that's kind of funny. It's like, so I was um, there's a wonderful. I don't know if you ever watched the show Doctor Who. Um, my husband's a fanatic. I'm, I'm a, I've never watched the early ones, you know, from years ago, but I'm a fanatic for the modern version. Uh-huh. New Who, as it's called. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's this beautiful episode in which the doctor finds himself on this kind of battlefield with these hand mines, they're called. The hands sticking out of the ground are actually mines, explosive. Beautiful. Terrible, but beautiful image, hand mines. Anyway, and there's this little boy on the other side of it, you know, and the boy doesn't, can't move because he's so terrified. And he says, you know, help me, help me, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, the doctor says, yes, I can help you. I can guide you. Just, you know, stay calm. It's okay. He says, but, but what's your name? And the boy says, Davros. And the doctor freezes because Davros is the person who in later life would create the Daleks, mm. which are the doctor's greatest enemies and the most fearsome beings in the universe. So if he lets this kid die, then the Daleks will never come into being, and billions of lives will be saved. You know, um, and also the Doctor will not have had to kill billions of people to stop the war with the Daleks. That's his backstory, which is terrifying. Anyway, so then the story goes into other stuff. It kind of like goes into his his Doctor's history and his whole experiences and the issues and confronting this. You know, and then at the end. Um, the, he's, they're back at the battlefield, the boy, and um, and he says, you know, you know, come to me. I will tell you how to do it. I will, you know, I will make sure you're okay. And the boy says, but, but who are you? And he says, I am the doctor, and I save people, mm-hmm. so that he cannot not save this kid, even though it's, you know, the hor- horrifying effects later on in time. And I immediately thought of. You know, I'm the tower reader and I save people. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that's a dangerous thing to start thinking because then you look to save people, mm-hmm. which you can't do. It's very dangerous to go around trying to save people. Right. I always like to say I try to keep people out of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I've known tower readers who look for people to save. Right. And but, that's, the, that's what they want to do. And to me, it's something that happens in the reading. Yeah. You can't look for it. And also people have to save themselves. Yeah, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I've had these readings where somebody, you know, had something bothering them, but it wasn't a big deal, they thought, you know? And the cards that came up indicated to me it was a very big deal that they were not recognizing. Right. And sometimes I'll do this thing, and I'll look at them, and I'll say, now you have to listen to me very, very carefully. Mm-hmm. 
figure out how to, you know, open up something for them that they have to get. But they might not. They might just not want it, you know? Yeah. We and just have to show up and, and let the cards do their magic and exactly. help people find their magic. And, you know, the best way is when they do find it themselves, you know? Absolutely. When well, they this, see it, you know, not you. Right, and I think this is really great advice that new readers and old school readers like myself need to hear. Thank you. So I, I really appreciate that. And I just so appreciate you spending time with me today. And I appreciate this new edition because... Let me tell you, it feels so good to have a fresh copy in my hands. <laughs> well, I heard that from so many people, too. Yes. That, you know, they bought three or four copies because they keep wearing out, you know? Yeah, they get destroyed when you keep using it like that. I mean, my book is like cracked, pages are falling out. It's it's a shame. So that one is going to be retired, and now uh-huh. this will be the new one that I'm going to be playing with for the next, you know, 20-something uh, years that okay. I have this book. Let me tell you something interesting. Um about, you know, the tarot books is that a lot of people, you know, falling apart, but there's cards they don't know about. Because mm-hmm. those cards never came up, they never looked them up in the book. Mm-hmm. And that was when I realized you can't write a tarot book assuming that people are reading it from cover to cover. Right. It doesn't because, always work like that. No, because people look at the cards they want to look at. So you can't say, as you saw in the previous cards, they might not have looked at the previous card. Mm-hmm. So sometimes in a tarot book, there's going to be repetitions because it's not read sequentially. Right. Yeah. And that's why certain parts get more uh, beat up than other parts. Yeah, I know. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it's kind of like my astrology ephemeris. I like to use an old-school ephemeris. Uh-huh. And I have I've ripped through ephemerises over the years, and the copy I have now is uh, it's a couple years old, and I've got pages falling out because I use it so much. So... There's our beloved things, and your book is beloved. And so, Rachel, where can people find you online? Oh, um, well, my email is rachel at rachelpollock.com, and I have a website that is not as up-to-date as it should be, but it's just rachelpollock.com. On Facebook, they look, just look up Rachel Pollock, um, and I have a blog, which is rachelpollock.wordpress.com. Excellent. Well, I want to thank you for spending time with me today. This has been such a great conversation. And for people who are listening, if you've never gotten a copy of 78 Degrees of Wisdom, well, you're in luck because the new edition is out. Get it. You need it. This is the tarot book that you should have on your shelf. And you're going to be glad you got it. So do look for it. You can find it online or at bookstores anywhere near you. Great. All right, people, well, that wraps up this episode of Tarot Bites, and you can check out lots more tarot goodness on my website, thetarolady.com. I've got free tarot lessons for tarot newbies, a tarot coloring book, and lots of other great things for you guys to check out. Enjoy. I want to thank you again for listening, and I hope you have a beautiful day. And, hey, if you're enjoying this little podcast, take a moment to leave a kind review on iTunes because that's going to help more tarot-curious people find their way to Tarot Bites. And as always, I love to close off by saying, pay close attention to your intuition throughout your day and let it guide you into making brave, excellent choices. Remember that you are always in the driver's seat of your life. You're in charge of your decisions, your plans, the action steps that you take or don't take. You're the boss. And if you don't like where your life is headed right now, you can change that. Nothing is ever fixed in stone. The tarot cards tell a story, but you write the ending. (laughs) 